In this episode, I am once again joined by Naomi Levine, author under her birth name, Norma Levine, of several books including The Miraculous 17th Karmapa, A Quest for the Hidden Lands, and Chronicles of Love and Death, My Years with the Last Spiritual King of Bhutan. In this interview, Naomi discusses her first book, Blessing Power of the Buddhas, an account of her three-year investigation into the sacred relics and holy men of Himalayan Buddhism and the field of supernatural happenings that surround them. Naomi recounts her insider meetings with Tibetan lamas, such as the polarizing Dzongja Kense, the reclusive Tartang Tulku, and the wrathful Orgyan Tobyal and recall stories of talking statues, sky metal magical implements, and the necessity of a female consort for certain tantric workings. Naomi also talks about the naive faith of the fresh convert, what it's like to be burned by a guru, and how to survive the waning of the honeymoon phase in one's religious, devotional life. So without further ado, Naomi Levine. Naomi Levine, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much. Pleasure. This is our fourth episode. That's right, yeah. And what a fascinating series of conversations it's been, touring through your various books and life. In fact, it's interesting, I was thinking as I was reading today, we're going to be talking about Blessing Power of the Buddhas, Sacred Objects, Secret Lands, published in 1993. Very early, compared to the other books we've discussed of yours, very early in your publishing career. And I, I think I noticed a certain kind of change over the course of your writing and evolution, I suppose, of style and of point of view, perspective. There's something of a optimism, I would say, and a kind of uh, faith, a honeymoon kind of phase, faith. As you reflect on your career as a writer, and um, having published several, many books on Buddhism. Have you noticed uh, an evolution in that sense? Has your perspective changed? Well, you know, when I was reading, rereading this book, and I don't usually reread my books at all. I mean, I write them and uh, sort of almost forget about them. Uh, and uh, because of the podcast, I, 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 of course, wanted to prepare properly, so I reread it, and I was astonished absolutely astonished at um, how different it was to number one different it was to the way I write now it was more flowery more more romantic more um, uh, the sense of devotion was very very strong in it and I think that's actually what made the book work um, in terms of the quest uh, to see the sacred objects, that was that was that was my state of mind then, and I was nineteen ninety two is a long time ago, and it is the first book that I wrote, you know, and how it evolved. If I may continue, um, uh, I, I was going to mention this is that it was not something that I was as usual in my life. I don't really go chasing after things very much. But um, a friend of mine called Nak Pachogyam, who is now called Nak Chak Rinpoche, uh, said to me that uh, Element Books, Michael Mann, who was the editor at the time, uh, wanted a book on uh, ritual objects. 
And and then he said, well, why don't you approach him? And, uh, you know, if I, I've already spoken to him about you because I was running a business called Windhorse Imports. I had had, you know, like already five years in India. And uh, uh, so uh, anyway, he said, write, write a chapter for me. So when I sat down, I recalled immediately, I recalled something that had happened on a journey into Ladakh in which the Buddha statue, which had been blessed by none other than Tai Sita Rinpoche, who was a very new, uh, shall I say, it was a very new relationship at that time, uh, well, quite new. Uh, anyway, I then remembered that story and I started to write it. Then I realized um, that was not to do with ritual objects, that was to do with sacred objects. So I decided, I sent it to him. I sent I sent it as it was written off and it it wrote itself, I have to say, because, you know, it was very memorable. It, uh, and I sent it off to um, Element. He liked it very, very much, but he said to me, now you're going to have a problem. Oh, why? Because you started off in this way and it's a peak experience. So how are you going to carry on in the rest of the book? <laughs> so I thought, oh, that's true, but I am going to carry on and I'm going to make it into sacred objects and, and how the whole thing manifests and what makes things happen. And the whole kind of, um, I was already thinking of Rangjung, self-arising objects. I was thinking of Terma objects. I was thinking of all the things I was really incredibly interested in, the, the sort of secret, esoteric, mystical side of Tibetan Buddhism. So that's how it, that's how it began. That's how, that is literally how my writing career, if you want to call it that, um, originated. And after that, you know, came various other books, but I've always been interested in the esoteric side. And this book is, when I read it, I thought, wow, it is so esoteric that I was surprised that, um, so many people liked it because I thought it was perhaps really maybe, you know, just too, too multidimensional, maybe something like that for the average person. Well, of course, it's not the average person that reads a book like that anyway, but um, it did do quite well and uh, got reprinted after some time. So, uh, and also translated into Portuguese, uh, which is, um, you know, nothing I ever heard anything about since that happened. But um, anyway, it's, um, I just kept thinking, what an unusual book this is, as if I hadn't written it. I felt so kind of different to the person who was writing that book. Yes, that struck me too, comparing, say, your latest releases and you've been quite prolific lately in the last handful of years to this yeah yeah you use the word romantic i think that's right stylistically there yeah. is a romantic style and something that grounds this book something that's in common with this book and the other books you've written is is that personal perspective that that framing if you like of the quest 
Uh, that, I think, grounds and guides the reader through these very strange multidimensional subjects and strange mm -hmm. multidimensional people that you write about in all of your books, in particular this one. I'm curious, when you look back at the person who wrote that book, who you were then, to what degree is that, that romantic, optimistic, devotional sense of sort of wonder and discovery and the sort of unfolding blessings that seems seems to sort of characterize the narrative of this this book, encountering all these miraculous and strange things and miraculous and strange people. Is that what is that what life was like for you then? Yes. Yes, it was. It was uh, I, 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 I sort of like uh, place it in the neophyte stage, you know, one has different stages in following a path. And if you're not moving, you're stagnant. So uh, I certainly put it at the at the at that level where I was absolutely uh, blown away. I was blown away by what what the meaning of the whole thing was and trying to probe it deeper and deeper. And you know, in the course of that, I made I kept a lot of the notes for some reason, and I wrote down things like, you know, all the people that I got interviews with, which is, this is another extraordinary thing. First of all, Zongsar Kensi Rinpoche, when he was actually going to a film school in London, which is a long time ago, in his flat in Holland Park, I'll never forget that. Uh, and then we go to C.R. Lama, who's in the book as Zilnan Lingpa, uh, because that is his proper name as a Tertan. I didn't even know he was a Tertan until I interviewed him. Of course, Sita Rinpoche, my guru, Jamgon Kontral Rinpoche, who was alive then and who gave me a guided tour around the um, very, very special room at Rumtek Monastery, which held all the sacred objects, which you can't, which you can't even get into now. Then Gyatsap Rinpoche, Tarthang Tulku, who doesn't see anybody, but I had, you know, some, um, uh, you know, some in way, and it just happened that we were on the same airplane going into Nepal uh, at one point, and I helped him with something. He remembered it. Then I approached him and asked him for an interview, and he gave it to me, but he doesn't give interviews to anyone. Then there, there was Chokinima, Trangu Rinpoche, Sanjya Nempa Rinpoche, Toku Urgyen, Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche, Tanga Rinpoche, Beru Kensi Rinpoche. I mean, it was, it's a, it's a compendium of, and Sogyal, I have to say, Sogyal Rinpoche told me some interesting things as well. So, you know, and, oh, did I mention, uh, Urgen Tobgyal, I don't think I mentioned him. He was, he was, yeah, he wasn't. Urgen Tobgyal, who had the collection of Chojur Lingpa, because he was, he was in the family of Chojur Lingpa, and he had this very, very, very special collection that belonged to Chojur Lingpa, from which I got quite a few photos for the book. So I have to say, uh, I was, all I did was recite the Guru Rinpoche mantra the whole time I was doing the book. 
not in any sort of formal way, not doing pujas, nothing at all, just placing my trust in Guru Rinpoche that if this is right, it's going to happen. And, you know, it's almost miraculous, but it did. All of it happened. All those special objects were taken out, shown to me. Uh, some I was allowed to photograph myself. Some I was not allowed to photograph myself, but I was told about. So, so um, for example, Sita Rinpoche, uh, he had a, well, I didn't even know what he had. You know, you just don't know. It's not something that is written out in, in uh, you know, you can't look it up on Google. What what does Sita Rinpoche have? What sacred objects does Zongsar Kensi have? Well, you know, like that kind of thing. You, it, It's just not known. And so um, I would just go and say, um, you know, in a very nice way with an offering and so on, I'd like to ask you about the sacred objects in your lineage. And so just to take Sita Rinpoche as an example, he had a great deal of sacred objects. Um, I even have a list of them, but I'm not going to read it out because it's too long. But for example, he had uh, Yeshi Sogyal's Z, uh, Guru Rinpoche Kutsab, which I have to explain what a kutsab is, Gampopa's finger, which emanated ring cell from time to time, the Buddha, the previous Buddha's relic, Deepankara Buddha's relic, which was, he said, a, a piece of barley, but it was, it showed, it showed up like a, like a, like much, much larger than barley is now. So, I mean, I'm just giving you an example of, of, some of the objects i didn't get all of them or use all of them but the curious thing is what i really wanted to see what i wanted more than anything else to see was the kutsab the kutsab of guru Rinpoche. now kutsab is very special there's only five of them in in the world and what it means kutsab means a representative so in other words, this is Guru Rinpoche saying, this is my representative. And he made the statue out of clay. He empowered it by uh, um, uh, dissolving his own body into it as, the, um, uh, as Guru Rinpoche. And therefore, empowering it for activity. There's five of them to represent the five activities of the Buddha, pacifying, magnetizing, um, enriching, um, something else, and destroying, you know. So anyway, uh, one of the one of Kutsab each, I could not find out all the keepers of the Kutsab. Sitrimshe was one. I think... Um, Zongsar Kensi was another, or the Kensi lineage was another, but I couldn't really find out more than that. So uh, I asked him if I could take photos. Well, he said, I'll take them for you. Okay, he didn't want me to take them myself. That's fine. So um, he took photos, 
And he sent them to me and all the very sacred ones did not come out. They were just blacked out. They were invisible. So I went back there eventually. I asked Rinpoche, please, um, could you take them again? And uh, he said, yes. So I waited and waited and waited for three months, three months while my visa expired, my, um, um, uh, yeah, I mean, my plane ticket expired, everything expired. I had to go back down to Delhi and change it and renew it and whatnot. I decided to stick it out and I got it in the end. I got it in my hand. Uh, so that's the kind of devotee I was as a neophyte, I guess. I have to call myself that. And I was, um, when I wanted to do something, I made sure it happened. And I wanted to do this so much. My heart was really into it. It was a journey that took me a couple of years and there was no part of it that wasn't um, inspired, totally inspired. And I think that's why the writing is so uh, sort of like, uh, it's not the way I write now. It's um, much more um, kind of, as you say, romantic. And uh, I think it's a little bit, um, if I was writing it now, I would edit uh, some of some of it out not because of the incidents, but because the writing, I think, is just not, um, it's, it's, there's too much, you know, but <laughs> I'm, I shouldn't be saying that because it's a really wonderful book anyway. But um, yeah, go on with, with what you were uh, about to ask me. We can go back a bit. Yes, I have several questions, actually. But to begin with, you said that's a neophyte stage. I wonder if you might trace the stages. There's a saying that familiarity breeds contempt. And I think this is sometimes can be true in relationships of all types. There's the initial honeymoon phase, and then you get to know the person and the initial flush of enthusiasm precedes the intoxication of uh, of uh, infatuation and then like the waves going back from the beach you see what you're left with <laughs> so maybe that's when you begin to get to know the person uh, a little clearer more clearly and sometimes people like what they find sometimes they don't it's always discovery and uh there is such a thing as familiarity breeding contempt in fact becoming so familiar with that which one found fascinating and infatuating that um burns off it so but that didn't necessarily happen. So I'm wondering what happened the stages of your own? Well, I'm going to use the expression that Tibetans use um, with the guru. The guru is like a fire. If you get too close, you get burnt. If you stay too far away, you don't get the heat. And that's what happened. So we got very close. I got very close to my guru. I got burnt. I stayed further away. I got cold. 
and um and i think you know that's a characteristic uh it's not for nothing that tibetans say that because you know you go through that stage as well that's another stage where you just you know withdraw a bit and and uh sort of examine your own life and uh and i think the first stage is kind of blind faith and in fact i was told by uh, my guru that um my reactions of withdrawing and so on which i was kind of like uh, you know i i was on such uh compatible terms with him that i could express all my emotions if you know what i mean including all the negative ones he said that was be it, and and that i was having a problem um and wanted to um you know i have lost faith i said i have lost i have lost faith and he said that's good because you had blind faith now you don't have blind faith well i said i don't think i have any faith at all and then he said who do you have faith in i said well this is the karmapa so i said oh the karmapa the karmapa just come out of tibet and he said well go to karmapa but you can always come back well i went to karmapa and i went back to him as well i served the karmapa for quite a long time i think i mean a long time quite a few years and then and then i realized actually it was taisitu who was my guru anyway that's a bit personal let's let's move on to something with the with the book itself because um uh that journey that i made going to ladakh um to start off with it was a a massive a massive experience in my life that put me on track for um something understanding something about um nirmanakaya which is the buddha in a body form in a in a in a tangible form and uh dharmakaya and on that trip i had a buddha statue with me that had been blessed by sita rinpoche i took it with me wrapped up in a cloth and um and when i the journey was very 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 dangerous and uh i was terrified and uh the bus in front of us crashed and we had to um stay overnight on the road and we were traveling you know like thousands of feet up and down below there were um wreckages of cars and trucks and so on and um i was terrified so uh, when i got to a place where i could and i was just like putting my faith putting my faith focusing on the buddha statue that was wrapped up in a nice little cloth at the top of my rucksack standing sitting right beside me when we finally came to a stop i opened it up and there was no buddha but the cloth was there so the story goes on like that and i had no idea what had happened to it in fact i thought as anyone would that somebody had stolen it and when i got back to um rinpoche finally um 
it turned into a very extraordinary conversation in which um, I said my, my Buddha was stolen. And he said, I don't think it was stolen. And I said, what happened then? And he said this, dematerialized. And uh, I just said, you mean it's gone back to Dharmakaya? And he said, yes. And I said, is that good or bad? He said, good, very, very, very good. And then I just had this moment where I realized that, you know, that it was an, it was an epiphanous moment where I realized that the Buddha had absorbed all the negativity and saved our lives in the process. So that, that, that sort of kicked off uh, something that was very inherent in my own being, you know, that, 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 that interest, that, that quest for something that was um, hidden uh, in Vajrayana Buddhism. And uh, it, it, it really became very much part and parcel of what I subsequently did. Uh, and how I lived my life, I think. Even in all the books that I've written, there's an element of something very unusual uh, going on in terms of first synchronicity and uh, the kind of, like, you know, the Shabdrung story is a very strange, unusual story as well. Um, that then turned into... Uh, Miraculous 16th Karmapa, which is also full of other people's encounters and signs. Uh, so it went on like that. And uh, I'm uh, happy to say that I've become more... Um, I'm not misty-eyed, really, uh, anymore. And I just look things in the face and try to see them for what they are. Uh, I don't have that kind of um, level of devotion that I had before. But I still have devotion. But, you know, it's not that kind. It's not that kind. I've never like uh, considered myself a fanatic or extremist, but uh, it was almost um, that it it almost cut out everything else in my life. That stage, yes, it did. In fact, I was I was gone in that stage for many many years. You know, considering that I met the Dharma in seventy in the mid seventies, and that lasted until, um, you know, the mid nineties, probably. It's a long time, so I kind of was forced to get out of it. I was pushed out of it because it's part of the process, is to not to stay in one place, but to keep moving and to uh, keep um, practicing, but at a, a different level of practice. So it became something like the deities 
didn't hold the same fascination for me as they had initially, for example. And uh, neither did the, the pujas so much. And I wanted to do more and more just consolidating, uh, looking at my own mind, more simple, more, more kind of down-to-earth practices, which involves, you know, being much more steady, much more stable, a lot of stability. So, um, yeah. I think one of the classic ways that converts exit the honeymoon stage, the neophyte stage, is through, as you've put it, getting closer to the fire, through closer and closer contact with the idols, I mean that in the sense of pop idol, of mm. of the tradition, mm. fellow uh, pilgrims, but I think more crucially, perhaps in this case, the the cast of characters of tukus and lamas and so on, this elevated class of elite tier, if you like, of realizers who are said to, many of them, be reincarnations of past masters, special kind of class of being, that's how they sort of seen and function as priestly class. You've had a lot of personal contact, close contact, sometimes very close contact, with a number of those sorts of figures. And you've written about that in your book about the Shabdrung, for exa example, and the raw humanity of that mm. interaction. Anyway. So I think sometimes people get disillusioned when they get close and then they realize that whatever their ideas were about this, this, this elite priestly class, perhaps those, those assumptions or ideas get challenged by what they experience. And then there are, of course, people you mentioned a couple of names. Sometimes these this, uh, members of this elite class are disgraced through one means or another. Uh, you mentioned Sogel Rinpoche, for example, big scandals, right? So sometimes that can, I think, make people very disillusioned as well. They have their faith in these in these uh, people. Maybe it's misplaced or the faith is wrong in some way. And that faith gets disappointed. So I'm, I'm curious about that. What do you think of that aspect in your own life or perhaps in, in your friends and colleagues who've, who you've seen also presumably go through these phases of neophyte, you know, and then this sort of matures and so on. Some, you know, bouncing off, some staying um, in different, not always changing. What do you think about this aspect, this, if you want, human dimension of this elite priestly class? Well, they say that if you see the guru as a Buddha, uh, then he's a Buddha. Uh, if you see him as an ordinary person, then you get the blessing of an ordinary person. So it's always beneficial to remember that the person that you are calling your guru and you have devoted your life to, if you, if you, you, if you have, is both an ordinary being and a Buddha. And because he's in a body, he or she is in a body, you're going to, if you get close, you're going to perceive them as quite a, you know, ordinary person. But uh, if you stand at uh, the right distance, finding the right distance is very important, neither too close nor too far. But these kind of like um, shifts and in devotion, um, I don't think you can 
ever return to the first stage that you've left behind. You can't go home again. You can't do the same kind of thing again because, and also the conditions. Look at the world now as compared to how it was in 1974 or five. Huge, massive, massive change. So everything has gone down. So it's said that during this age of Kali Yuga, there is much more benefit in practice, uh, much more merit in 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 any practice uh, than there would be if all the conditions were right. Because it's such a great, um, you know, you're still you're still there. You're still connected to the Dharma. Um, so I think my life is probably an example in a more extreme form than most of the people that I know of uh, the stages, the stages of the path. And I don't claim any um, uh, special experiences um, as a result of that, but there were more special experiences at the beginning than there are now those kind of experiences that just happen spontaneously, experiences of emptiness, um, uh, experiences of uh, amazing synchronicity, everything falls into place. Uh, you know, when I go back to India now, I just think how turbulent and how chaotic. Uh, I don't usually get the, you know, I used to feel, um, particularly when I was living at, at Sherabling a long time ago, I used to feel that um, India, I think, was so special. I could feel the blessing throughout India all the time. The, the blessing of having uh, of the enlightenment you know, happen in India. The Buddha happened in India. So everybody was blessed. And you'd only have to say the word Guruji for people to know um, that uh, they would respond. It was, a, it was a trigger word for everyone. It touched their heart right away. They understood what Guruji was. And I had this experience, which I, I think I also mentioned in the book, where I was trying to get to the the cremation of the 16th Karmapa at uh, Rumtek in Sikkim. And I was building a house at Sherabling. I knew some of the, uh, well, the people that I ordered um, building materials from. Uh, of course, I knew them, you know, pretty well. And I went, I had no money. Suddenly, I found that I had no money even to buy a train ticket to go to Sikkim because it all happened like quite suddenly. And um, I went to the, uh, the kind of like the builder's yard, you could say, but it's, you know, it wasn't anything like that. It was just a big shop in the bazaar. And I asked the man who had supplied many of the building materials, I asked him, you know, I said, my Guruji is in Sikkim and he has died, and I have to go to his cremation. I don't have any money. Can you help me? 
and I said, five, 500 rupees would, you know, help quite a lot. And he actually handed over, I think it was something like two, one, he gave me 1,000 and then he gave me another 1,000. So he gave me 2,000 altogether. And uh, now I can't imagine that happening in India or anywhere else. Can you? I mean, it's just, uh, I was very um, drawn to that because it meant that everybody understood how important this event was for a, um, you know, for a devotee and uh, just took the money out of his pocket and gave it to me. So I, uh, I think that wouldn't be, I don't imagine I could do that now in India. It's also changed a lot. Um, even though I am set to go to the holy place of Bodh Gaya in January, and it is still a very holy place to me, but um, the kind of things that happened before, you know, they don't, they don't always happen. They don't, they have a, a limitation kind of time limitation on them. So I I was fortunate. I feel that I was very, very fortunate to belong to that generation that had that kind of, um, you know, everything, everything was there for us. Yes, and, and that generation to which you belonged, thanks to that generation's enthusiasm for Indian religion and Tibetan Buddhism as well. And university programs were founded and publishing houses were founded and stars were born of lamas, you know, international spiritual rock stars were created and so on and, you know, books, etc. Courses. Yeah. You know, now, now many lamas give teachings internationally to hundreds of thousands of people online and in person and have books that published all around the world in different languages. And so there's a business now, if you want, there's a, an infrastructure of promotion and there's a, a big interest too from all around the world and different sorts of interest. People have different sorts of interests as well. What do you think of that? aspect of it, the change in terms of the profile of the religion and the diverse ways in which it's marketed, and also the different sorts of people that are now interested in it, and the sheer number of them. Well, okay, let's start off like this. Um, if I wanted to get uh, the Mahamudra teachings from my guru, Tai Situ, I have to be there in person. He does not give them on Zoom and never will, because he says that the way he got them was from his guru, and he is not breaking the tradition, uh, the, trans, the, the, the tradition of transmission. The tradition of transmission, he told me, was um, he, I, I asked him once, how is it that you are so, you know, he'd given me a, a, what you, a pointing out instruction, and I asked him how, not at the same time, but how is it that uh, you can do that? And 
that I can get it. And he said, it's because I have not changed a single word of what my master gave me. And, and that is how he is. And I, now I measure everything by that. Now there's some teachings that you can give openly and, um, and he does and on Zoom and courses you can attend on Zoom and so on. But the sacredness of the transmission process is what makes or breaks a, um, a lineage. And that the lineage that I belong to is a pure one passed on from toku to toku or person to person or Buddha to, to his disciples. It goes way back. And that's why it has that much power. And it should not be um, messed around with. So I think, okay, the fact that uh, mindfulness has now become uh, almost uh, corporate, you know, uh, and uh, people think that um, mindfulness is it, you know, that they are, um, maybe they even think uh, mindfulness is all there is to Buddhism, I'm not sure. Mindfulness, of course, was part of the Buddha's teaching, but that's not the way he started the path. You know, he did not start with mindfulness. He started with the Four Noble Truths, the sort of things that people don't like to look at. You know, the truth of suffering, <laughs> the truth of impermanence, the truth of death, the truth of karma. You know, it's not, it's not something that you actually like to look at. You much prefer just to um, get into the bliss if you get bliss in your meditation, isn't that nice? Yeah, it's nice, but it's that um, attitude, let's say, is not going to get you anywhere. It's it's just okay. It calms your mind, perhaps makes you a better person, makes you you know happier person. That's good. All of it's good. It's not bad, but it's not going to um, bring enlightenment in itself, not in itself. So, um, you know, I look at it both ways. I think, uh, you know, much of what we get online, there is so much, there is actually too much for me even to follow. Like I don't, I don't. I stick to a few, a few things and try to put as much as I can into um, them. And I don't feel the need to get, um, to join classes on Zoom. Um, I would if I didn't have anything else to do. But <laughs> um, yeah, it would be a, a nice way, but I'm, I, I'm much too, um, uh, um, I use my body. I'm I'm more into body physical physical things like yoga and uh, yantra yoga in particular, which is connected with Namkai Norbu's Zogchen community. I I do that, and I do Vajra dance because I think movement is very very important. And so many people, I think, from the old school time, who lived in India and Nepal, are now not very healthy because they sat and sat and sat and sat. 
and um, and drank butter tea, you know. So they became really like um, when you get older, you really find out kind of how your how not using your body impacts on all the organs. Um, and uh, well, that hasn't happened to me. So I'm very grateful that I kept up both sides, both body and mind, kind of more or less in more or less in balance. You mentioned uh, that you interviewed many lamas and tukus and so on in the making of this, in the research phase of this book, and the list is quite remarkable. Just your acknowledgement acknowledgements page itself is sort of a who's who, really, really interesting indeed. You mentioned, first of all, Jean-Jacques Kenzie Rinpoche, and that you met him and his flat, as you say, in Holland Park, when he was at film school in London. I wonder if you might, and later I'd like to return to the, some specific themes of the book, particular points, like Rangjong, for example, and Terma. Rangjong and Terma, yes, very important. So we'll get to that, but seeing as you brought up this, these interviews, what's the story of that interview? Could you tell us the story of of that meeting and uh, your impressions of Tong Jaikense then and now. Yeah, I, I, I think I just asked. I think I'd got. He appeared frequently at uh, Rigpa, Tong Jaikense at the initial stages, and I used to go because I found him absolutely. Um, you know, he was such an interesting teacher, so interesting in what he had to say and the way he put it and his, you know, his way of like, um, his way of teaching I found extraordinary because he wasn't like reading a text or following anything. That was very spontaneous. Um, so anyway, I, I can't remember this, but I must have asked him, you know, and then he arranged a, a meeting for me to come to his house in Holland Park and uh, he was still not a fully-fledged um, um, teacher as such because he was, you know, he was mo probably more interested in film at that point, making a film, learning how to make a film. Well, I was um, I was very impressed with Song Sir Kensi. His clarity, his, his way of putting things, his, his succinctness, his... Um, there was no show of any kind. He had one monk with him only. And um, he was kind of living like a normal guy, except, you know, he was Song Sarkensi, like a prince. He looked like a prince as well. And, of course, his, his lineage is like the most impeccable that one that you can imagine. Now, uh, he's changed a lot. He's very... Provocative, I think. He's very, uh, almost like a stuntman. Uh, he's, uh, he wears different kinds of clothes. Sometimes he puts on makeup. He wants to shock. He wants to get a reaction. And I think he does get a reaction. I think he does. Um, and some people like him and some people don't like him. And I think it doesn't bother him at all. Uh, but he, when I, when I first met him, I said to him, you know, who I'm really in love with is your father, <laughs> Tinley Norbu. You know, I had been to see, or did I go to see him before or after? 
I don't remember. I think Tinley Norbu. I, I did certainly meet Tinley Norbu, and I was very, very impressed with him. He had a maturity, a wisdom, a absolute total relaxation, and it was unfortunate. It was towards the end of his life, so I never saw him again. But he did give a very good description of the outer, inner, and secret hidden lands, which I put into the book. So, uh, yeah, I was comparing Zong Sarkensi to his father, and uh, I preferred his father. But anyway, it doesn't matter. Zong Sarkensi Rinpoche himself is a is a great... Um, um, he's a very multifaceted person. Personality, for one thing, personality. And multifaceted personalities... Um, are not for everyone. And uh, although I really enjoy listening to his teaching and reading his books, which I think are brilliant as well, how not to be a Buddhist. Yeah. It, they're very, very good. So is his father. They were excellent, both both of them excellent writers. Um, the Golden, I think it was The Small Golden Key, was one of his books. Anyway, I read, I, I appreciated the books more than anything else. Uh, and uh, so that was one occasion that uh, stuck in my mind. Uh, he also scared me. Zong Sarkensi, I found him a bit scary because he was very um, clear about uh, who was in and who was out. He seemed to have like a group of people around him who were courtiers, devotees, whatever you want to call it. And and those people knew who they were and they always, you know, went with him. But if you tried to get in, you wouldn't feel so comfortable. I mean, I, I didn't feel comfortable trying to break down any of those barriers, social barriers. So I just left it alone. Uh, then uh, another... Uh, memorable meeting. Yeah, I told you about this already. Uh, Tarthang Tulku. If we talk about Tarthang Tulku, would you mind situating him a bit, explaining him a little Ooh, bit? Yes. Very yes. mysterious figure, very strange, very strange. reclusive, mm -hmm. but influential. Mm. Uh, mm. Yeah. Yes, he was one of he was one of the um, the first lamas to come to America, I think, uh, to come to the West. And he established uh, Nalanda Institute uh, and the Nalanda Translation. It is called Nalanda, isn't it? Translation Committee. And uh, they did, um, you know, histories of Buddhism. Uh, and he taught, he started teaching a Tibetan um, yoga called Kumne, as well and uh, that has gained a certain amount of popularity but it's nothing like um, other kinds of yoga so if you expect it to be it, it's not the same at all it's slow 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 like slowing everything down uh, time space and uh, something else time space and what is it knowledge 
Time, Space, and Knowledge is another one of his uh, books, which I read. Tarthang Tulku was a um, um, kind of an en enigmatic figure because he never gave a lot of teaching. Um, he married uh, a Western woman. He had two daughters, as far as I know, and um, they got divorced. Uh, it was, I think it was very radical for him, uh, the, you know, the changeover. Um, and uh, his daughters, I began to know uh, Wongmo Dixie, Dixie Wongmo, uh, quite well. At a certain point, I encountered her. Anyway, when I, how I encountered Tarthang Tulku um, was when I was in Varanasi. And uh, I guess I was researching, I was researching the book. So um, I met him uh, because we happened to go to the same um, brocade maker in Varanasi. I was doing business. And, and he was buying brocade. Llamas always go there to this particular place and buy brocade. So it's actually a very good place to meet a, a very high tulku if you, want to, if you want to plan out your life that way. And um, by chance, I, I met him there, but uh, I didn't uh, put my, you know, well, maybe I did ask him if he would. Uh, contrib contribute to my book that I was writing. But then uh, I got a sort of enigmatic reply, neither yes, neither no. And uh, and then we found ourselves on the same airplane going to Kathmandu. Now, he had his entire um, load of brocade uh, confiscated at customs. Uh, and... Um, he had to pay a lot of money to get it released, actually. So I was helping him at that point. I was standing beside him, telling him what he had to do, this and that and so on, because he wasn't familiar. And I was uh, more familiar with the whole thing. I knew that you couldn't bring in um, that much into uh, Nepal. So uh, as a result of that, he remembered me, and when I asked for an interview, he said yes. And uh, what he said was very interesting, uh, because I was recounting to him. I started off by recounting this this very special story about the journey to Ladakh in which the Buddha dematerialized. And I asked him, "What do you, what would you say about that? What do you say about that?" I was, you know trying to um, get explanations. And he said, it, it's, not, it's not really something that can be put into words. Once you do that, it might never happen again. You see? So I really sat back and I thought, ah, you're so right. Once you conceptualize something, it means you've lost it, is what it means. So um, that was a very important statement for me, in fact. Writers conceptualize everything.
all these experiences. I I don't tell them all, that's for sure. But um, I understand how that can happen because you're you suddenly move out of one very perfect and let it be as it is into another aspect of your mind which just can't stop conceptualizing mm, so i i really admired him for that statement he didn't say a lot but he, what he said was very significant and he's enigmatic he, he doesn't he does not give interviews he doesn't even teach he must be quite old by now whenever i encounter um uh, Dixie Wong sometimes in Bogai I asked how is your, ask how is your father and she said he's he's all right he's healthy so um yeah I I did have the great fortune of encountering um these lamas and I'll tell you also another another uh, interesting thing another interesting story is Ergen Tobgyal Ergen Tobgyal. He is the in the in the family of Chojulingpa. He has a reputation of being very, very wrathful. So I didn't even dare approach him and ask him. But then uh, I thought I will just walk up. I will say the Guru Rinpoche mantra. I will walk up to his door, knock on his door and ask him. Because I was already in beer, I was at Sherabling, and and he was not very far away. So I walked up to his door, knocked on the door, told him that I don't have any special letter of recommendation from anyone because I was thinking of getting, oh, you know, would you write a reference for me so people know who I am and I can do the research a bit easier? And then I rejected that idea altogether because I thought if it's if it's going to be authentic, it has to be because. I'm there at the right time, and it's the right thing. So I'm going to leave out that whole way of doing things. I'm going to do it on my own. And, uh, yeah, um, he opened the door. I said what I had to say, and he said, come in. And he laid out later, he said, how do you want to do this? I told him what I was doing, of course, and that I was a student of Sita Rinpoche. And he, and he said, how do you want to do this? I said, well, I'd love to have photographs. So he said, come back day after tomorrow or something like that. And I did. And he had all the, the these incredible objects lined up for me to take photographs. I thought that was remarkable. And in fact, the, the cover, the second cover, no. Was it this? Yes. This cover, this is the second edition of the book. Can you see it? Oh, yes. Okay. This was uh, Vadra Books, done by Vadra Books. But this picture of Guru Rinpoche was amongst the most cherished of his possessions. And uh, it is um, the most beautiful uh, Guru Rinpoche I've ever seen. So that got on the cover um so the yeah these were all i think terma yeah choja lingpa lingpa is the name of a of a teratan and they were all from 
his collection. You know, Namchak, that's another thing that's important. Sky, sky metal. Um, it's, it's not made from this earth. It's not made from anything on this planet. It, it's a metal. It's called sky metal. That's what it is. Sky metal. And I can only imagine that it forms from the elements of thunder, lightning, something like that, that creates something like sky metal, which then appears. Nobody makes it. It just appears. And uh, Zilnon Lingpa, C.R. Lama, told me a story about how he was in the middle of a puja one day and he needed a particular purva that had um, disappeared from, like he, he didn't have it anymore. And suddenly the purva was on his table, on his puja table. It had just manifested like that. Um, I've had the experience also of something similar. And I don't want to blow this up in any way at all. But when I was in Tibet and I was uh, at the um, doorway, you could say, to the hidden land of Pemico on my first trip. Yeah, that was my first trip with Jorme Dorje. Uh, I um, was sitting on a hillside having tea well, you know, the few people that were on that journey. A man came over to me, a village man dressed in absolutely ordinary clothes. And uh, he said, I, he said to Jorme Dorje, because he was talking to him, he said, I have something for the lady. So Jorme said, well, you know, and he took out uh, something from his bag and he put it in my hand, and it was this. I'm going to show it to you. Can you see, it's just a, it's a stone, but it's got a line around its perimeter, and it's got a peak like a breast, like a like a breast here. And it started as soon as it came into my hand. I could feel it throbbing, um, and uh, I knew it was something very special very, very special. So I offered him something for it. And he said, Oh, I said, I think, you know, can I give you a 100? What would you like for it? Can you give it? Can can you give it to me? And he said, uh, 200 yuan. And I started like, uh, ridiculously bargaining, and saying, Oh, I'll give you 100 yuan. That's that's what I've got in my pocket. And uh, then he took the 100 yuan, and he simply disappeared. And I knew that he was a messenger of Guru Rinpoche. I knew that it was some form. These these people appear. They're not really people. They're just, um, I think there's a word for Nimayin. Nimayin. It's somebody who manifests. Uh, but they're not, they look like real people. But they just, man they, they, they appear and they disappear again. And uh, that that was my so I I've never let go of this. 
I showed it to all the great masters, including and asked them to hold it and bless it, and including Sitarimshe, Karmapa, Sakya Treason. Um, yeah, that's that's what I remember. They all held it. They said they said it's very special. They didn't say what it was. Sitarimshe said, "Don't give it to anyone. Keep it for yourself." Uh, and you should you should uh, experience something like um, that uh, of enrichment of enrichment you know like your fortunes should get better your, your that kind of thing. So I have kept it in in a bag. I very rarely let anyone touch it, and um, I even go to sleep with it at night, holding it every night, and I feel. It's, uh, I, I, I make it part of me, make it part of me. So that's my tiny treasure. But I, I feel that it really was given under very special conditions. In fact, the Lama, when I finally did get to Pemaco, he said, um, I told him, I met the Lama who had taken treasure from the lake in Pemaco as uh, Pejalingpa. I met I met a Lama in Pemaco who had seen that treasure taking, and I told him he, I, I let him uh, you know look at at this stone, and uh, he said yes everything that comes from that place it has to do with Guru Rinpoche, and that was Timpe the cave at Timpe where I got it from. So, um, do you want to talk about Terma? Yes. Specific, uh, specific question in mind. Two or three questions. So perhaps we could start in this way. Let's talk about sacred objects in the context of Tibetan Buddhism. You write here in Blessing Power of the Buddhas, practices you're talking to Sogyal Rinpoche and you ask him this question. Now I'm reading from the book. How would you explain that these objects have special blessing power, I ask? What it really means, he replies precisely, is that Buddhas emanate through images, all images, but only if they are blessed. It has to be filled with holy mantras and relics, and then it has to be consecrated. Then it becomes the object of veneration, the object of practice. So I'm wondering if you might give us a sense of what does it, what what are sacred objects in the in this context of Tibetan Buddhism? How do they become sacred? How are they used? Well, uh, that's the whole book. <laughs> Um, okay, I'll do my best. Um, yeah, so a Buddha has to be filled and consecrated, and the uh, the shape the the um, the essence of the Buddha has to be brought into it. That's called the shape the wisdom aspect. And when Sita Rinpoche consecrated my Buddha that I took with me on that fateful journey. Um, he explained it, what he was, what he was doing, 
and, uh, and he filled it with blessing. And then he uh, did something that's called rapne, which is remain. You know, so, so you not only fill it with the wisdom mind of the Buddha, but you tell it to remain in there, rapne. So uh, without without that consecration, uh, a Buddha statue is like a, a plane without an engine. Okay, it's just a it's a form, but it's not just a form because the form of the Buddha itself is very special, and I go into that in the book also that it has the thirty two the thirty two marks of the Buddha have to be are due to each mark, each sign of the Buddha, for example, broad shoulders, a yujnisha, um, uh, uh, which reaches up um, to so far, so high that you can't measure it. Uh, webbed feet, I mean, which is kind of like, how can that be beautiful? But um, these, are, these are all signs of... Uh, the shape of the Buddha, the shape itself represents countless eons of merit gathered through um, bodhicitta, wishing, aspiring to be a Buddha to help all sentient beings. That's what that's what carries it forward. So every aspect of a Buddha has to be made in that way then filled and consecrated and then you really then you really have a sacred you have a sacred object that can do if the conditions are right if the receiver is uh, receptive uh yeah miracles happen that's that's fundamental um then um Then the other kinds of sacred object, there, there, let's go into like the categories, uh, because the other kinds of sacred object are, are in the um, terma tradition. And the terma tradition is entirely due to Guru Rinpoche uh, and explaining who Guru Rinpoche is. You know, it took me a long time to understand that Guru Rinpoche was not, um, you know, he's 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 given a physical. Of course, he had a physical form. He had a physical form, but I couldn't understand how somebody who was born from the lotus from a lotus on the lake could have a physical form. It just seemed um, incomprehensible. How could you have a birth from a seed syllable? That goes into a, a into a, a lotus. In other words, a vadra seed syllable, which is a um, you know the sexual symbol for a male, and uh, goes into a lotus, the sexual symbol for a female, and 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 a self arising child that is made out of flesh and blood. It you, you know it's just like. I didn't disbelieve it, but I couldn't believe quite get my head around it. So uh, I kept asking 
did he have a physical form and what was it like? And did he, you know, how could he do his consort practice if he wasn't a man, you know? And uh, the answer was um, that it, God, the answer, what was the answer to that anyway? Say Rinpoche told me something. He said that he had a hair, he had a hair of Guru Rinpoche. And then it, it was a it was a real hair, you know, from his head. And uh it was very fine, very, very fine. And and he thought that it was, yes, it was Guru Rinpoche from his body. So um Guru Rinpoche stayed a certain number of years on the planet, and then he went off on a horse into the sky to the copper-colored mountain, where he remains. And uh, I was told that if you have devotion to Guru Rinpoche, he never left. He never leaves. He can be called upon on the 10th day of the month, which is his special day, and he can be there for people of faith always. So um, I take that on board as, um, you know, I started to think quite differently about, you know, getting explanations for things, because really what it is is that our way of explaining things is completely mistaken anyway. This is a what we live and what we call... Um, our reality is not is 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 delusion. It's made up of delusion, of projections of our mind, of the sense perceptions. So reality is as Milarepa said, samsara is the result of a of a of a mis, of a mistaken point of view. And so we 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 have to like turn our whole mind around and look like a mirror at ourselves, at our own mind, in order to understand that. But these objects are coming from that level of unmistaken, unmistaken point of view. And they that is the true reality, not the reality that we want to tie up with words and concepts and so on like that. That's not it. So we, you know, uh, when I got that pointing out instruction from Tulku Urgyen, all he did was, you know, slap his hand on the table and hold up his palm. And he said, this is sentient beings. And then he turned it around and he said, and this is Buddha's. So we're Buddhas facing the wrong way. But that didn't enlighten me either. Um, it was like um, the, just the beginning. That was just the beginning of being able to, to glimpse something, but not being able to experience it. But I did experience it, you know, on another occasion, on two other occasions, actually. So, um, 
you know, the only reason that something is called hidden is that um, you have one has hasn't got the uh, facility to um, see it, understand it. That's what hidden is. It's nothing. It's nothing but that. It's one's own inability to perceive what it is. So I was in and out of that dimension uh, while I was writing the book. And it was extremely um, full, powerful. Those three years, three years writing that book. And it's only like 150 pages, I think. Yeah. But it was, it's very tightly packed, I think, isn't it? Mm. Actually. It is. And you cover really a very diverse range of sacred objects and sacred, I suppose, categories of sacred things. Another category is is this, uh, this phenomenon of talking pictures or talking statues. If I read yeah. here from your chapter, Images of Ultimate Truth, you are talking with Zhongjiaqens Rinpoche. He says, I have a Tara picture, Zhongjiaqens Rinpoche tells me which on many occasions Jamyang Kensi Chuki Lodro talked to like a human. As the recognized incarnation of that great Tibetan master, the picture is part of Rinpoche's spiritual legacy. He reveals it in a very matter-of-fact way during an interview in London. You go on to quote him as saying, It was painted on the wall in Zhongshan Monastery in Tibet. We took it out and brought it to beer. It's not that special, just a simple Tara painting. No one special painted it. But it spoke many times to Zhangyang Kensei Chuki Lodro. Many of his attendants even saw it. And then you go on to ask him what factors are involved with this and, and he answers. So what about this category of, of talking statues, talking pictures and so on? One thinks of Fatima in Portugal or Lourdes, for example. That's right. It's in the Christian tradition as well, isn't it? Oh, certainly. Relics, sacred objects, yeah. miraculous field is something very prominent, particularly in late antiquity and medieval Christianity, for sure. In, in, the, Catholic, in the Catholic side, yeah, in the, in the what shall I say, the, um, yeah, the more, yeah, the more orthodox side of uh, Christianity. I mean, people have had experiences with Madonnas, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, what do I think of it? Well, it's kind of out of this world. That's what it is. And it's, um, I believe in it. I mean, not just because I've had a, a little bit of a taste of it, but because I believe that anything is possible, frankly. Anything is possible. If you put the right things, if you put the right con conditions into the... If you put the right stuff into the soup, it, it, it's, it works, you know, and there's no limitation to uh, our idea of logical or needing to explain or how it works. It's not, it's not really a, a science, you know, it's not really explainable like Guru Rinpoche hid 
many, many termas. Um, and, uh, and he hid it, the satyr, there's two categories, the earth termas, which are satyr, which are material objects. And then there's the gongter, the mind termas, which he hid in the minds of each of his 25 disciples to be reborn at a certain time to take out that particular treasure. Now, you can't really logically explain that, but I know it's true. Um, and uh, so, uh, yeah, this, so the, the satyrs are the material objects, and they can be like um, a particular bell in Dorje. It can be a text. Uh, I, um, written in Dakini language, uh, which has to be then, you know, uh, interpreted, or it can be a few letters that then have to be written out by the Teraton into the proper, it's called the chokse, the key, you know, that's written down. And then it turns into a text, and then it comes at the right time to help people with whatever they need at that time. So there's that satyr, there's, um, you know, he hid it in rocks, in caves, in water. Uh, and I mean, the story of Chodralingpa going into the water to, you know, at a certain time, jumping into the water to take a treasure from a sort of water monster that came up exactly at the same time. And he takes a treasure from its mouth I mean, you know, it's just um, it's out. It's just out of this world. That's all. All the, uh, and it comes about only with a consort. This is very interesting as well. The female uh, Yeshi Sogyal, who was uh, Guru Rinpoche's consort, she was the queen. She was King Trison Detson's queen. He offered her to the guru, to Guru Rinpoche as Gurumshay's consort because he, he he picked her that's as his consort and um he need so a, a teraton needs a consort to take out the treasure and it's the union of male and female that does it it's not necessarily uh in union as such but even the presence of that woman at that time needs to be needs to be there in order for him to manifest the you know his mind treasure for example it can't be done without so yeshi sogyal is the uh, the guardian and the uh, protectress and uh, the the, the person who was assigned to that job forever to keep the terma in the right place in case, for example, it was moved in case they're building a road there and it's there's a terma hidden in that boulder and it's up to Yeshi Sogyal to get on the job and, and make sure that, that, uh, that the protector has taken it to a safer place. So it's very, very very esoteric, the whole thing. 
um, I can't really uh, put words to it, uh, it, like more explanations than that. There's also something called ringsel, which is little, little, little colored, almost pebbly shaped, but very small, very tiny, um, sort of shiny, sometimes colored objects that come from the uh, the body of a master after he dies or just suddenly appear on the ground somewhere. Um, I've seen collections. I think there was a collection going around this country of Ringsel uh, a few years ago, and I went to see it, and it's just, uh, it was extraordinary. Yeah, I didn't got I didn't get any photos of it though. The book uh, "Blessing Power of the Buddhas" is full of these kinds of descriptions, and very often drawn directly from the interviews. Most often drawn directly from the interviews with the various lamas, so their words do quite a lot of the explaining. That's right. That's right. And so it's it's very interesting for that. I recommend "Blessing Power of the Buddha" to everybody. It's uh, certainly if this has been interesting. One, uh, perhaps the last then uh, point I'll ask you about from the book is this issue of Rangjong, Rangjong, and I'll quote here from the book. You say the sacred mandala that was Tibet produced a spiritual culture in which the archetype was so conscious, so recognized that nature manifested it spontaneously and frequently. And now you're quoting. We call it Rangjong, said Zilnong Limpa, because there's no description of cause and effect. And you continue, nor has there been any scholarly research into it, no in-depth historical description in the scriptures, in Padmasambhava's writings, or those of any of his disciples, to theorize how it is produced, nothing to give it a causal definition. It's there, and no one has made it. And later on you say that Rangjung is a process that depends on our readiness to receive its message. When the time is right to speak, the image will emerge more and more clearly. So what is Rangjung? And what was your experience in researching this particular point? Well, there was a, for one thing, there was a statue at the Ashura Cave in Nepal of Tara that um, I saw uh, twice. And the first time I saw it and the second time I saw it were at intervals of about 10 years, something like that. The first time I saw it, it was not very well formed but people were still making offerings to it because they could see that there was an outline there that was coming out. The second time I saw it, I could see it perfectly shaped. And it was, um, and what was so interesting about it is that, you know, if you make a sculpture, it's, it's smooth. If you make something by hand, it's smooth. It's not going to be like, uh, so this was coming out of the rock and it was all like the surface was all, like the surface of the rock, very knobbly. You know what I mean? So it was it was clear that nobody was making it. It was just manifesting. And um, Rangjung, spontaneously arising phenomena. Well, you need, you need a culture, I think, to support it. The whole um, culture in Tibet and Nepal at that time 
was um, one that just, you know, allowed it to happen because everybody was born, you know, knowing the mantra of the Chenrezig, for example. You know, it was like spinning a prayer wheel, you know, children saying mantras. The whole country was in one piece. It was not, you know, it, it, it was of a piece. It was in that culture. I also saw something very extraordinary uh, that uh, Say Rinpoche had uh, that was also Rang Jung. And he had uh, something that came from Pema, Pema Karpo, Drukpakunli, Sampagyari, Sampagyari. His lineage is the uh, Drukpakagi lineage. And um, he is the son of uh, uh, a great. Uh, yogi in Manali, uh, whose name I've forgotten, and uh, and his lineage was from uh, the uh, from Sampagyari. It came from Sampagyari. So so uh, it was uh, it was something in the shin bone of Sampagyari after he had passed away. And it was like a, a a very very tiny carving, as if somebody had carved it into the shin bone, and it was like as fine as a natsuki. It was like perfectly formed, and it was called karsapani, which is a form of chenrezig, thousand arm chenrezig. Thousand arm chenrezig is a very very complicated statue. You can imagine. And uh, and it was a perfect formation of uh, that which had come out naturally from the shin bone. So um, it has to do with uh, the expression of bodhicitta again. If your bodhicitta is strong enough that you wish that every part of your body, everything that you do, say, and um, think is is going to help sentient beings, then you can that can manifest as um, a gift, if you like, for sentient beings in the future to be able to see something like that. But you know these things are not are you can't go into a museum and see them. It's uh, everything was very auspicious for that to happen. He said he'd never shown it to anyone. But because he was a very close friend of Shabdrung Rinpoche, that's how I got to 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 um, ask for permission to see that object. Otherwise, it was just going to be a little chat in his shrine room. And then I suddenly thought I'd ask him. And he, he said, I've never shown it to anyone, but I'll I'll show it to you. So Rangjung is, is um, I also likened it to uh, Jung's explanation of uh, the archetype and how certain things uh, are beyond um, uh, cause and effect. It has nothing to do with cause and effect. We see everything as having to do with cause and effect because that's the... That's the way we, that's the way our minds work. 
That's the way the whole universe works. Uh, the, the practical universe works that way, you know? Uh, and he said, and, and Jung also said, it has nothing to do with cause and effect. It's a causal. So it has something to do with the deeper level of mind, the subconscious. And I thought that was a good way of bringing it into, if you like, you know, a more, slightly more rational, an explanation that we can understand, you know, we can understand that. There's so much more we could talk about from this book. It's so packed full of detail and different facets and wonderful uh, accounts of your interviews also with these different lamas and your own journey actually and your own quest through this three-year quest in researching the book such a fabulous read blessing power of the buddhas i recommend it naomi levine thank you very much thank you thank you for listening to another guru viking podcast for more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.